New accounting standards adopted over the past decade have exposed the state of funding for retiree health care benefits in public education. And the news is not good. Nationwide, the unfunded liability for teachers and other education employees has reached $230 billion. Though such benefits were designed to attract and retain high-quality teachers, they're now costing all teachers money while benefiting only a fraction, and perhaps priming the sector for more protests similar to the strikes and walkouts we saw this spring. Just how big is the financial dilemma facing state and school district policymakers, and what's the best way for them to respond? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Chad Alderman, a principal at Bellwether Education Partners and the editor of TeacherPensions.org. I'm happy to say that he's also a regular contributor to Ed Next and the author of the new article, Healthcare for Life, that will appear in the winter 2019 issue of the journal and is available now at EducationNext.org. Chad, welcome back to the Ed Next podcast. Thanks for having me on. So in your article, you describe retiree healthcare benefits as the ultimate arcane issue in the education sector. And it's complicated. Until recently, no one paid it much attention. So let's start with the basics. If I have this right, benefit plans that included healthcare and retirement were once quite common in the private sector of the American economy, with most large employers offering them in an attempt to compete for workers. When and why did that start to change? Yeah, uh, it's, there's an interesting history here, and there are different accounting standards in the public and the private sector. And in the private sector, um, there was an accounting change in the 1980s that forced uh, private employers like companies to recognize not just how much they were spending on their retiree health benefits in a given year, but also how much they're going to cost in the future and how much uh, their promises are worth to the future employees and future retirees. And so as a result, that forced companies to start recognizing those, those costs. They were real costs. They just weren't recognizing them before. They started having to recognize them on their books, and companies started dropping them. And so um, they, we, we see a lot of companies over time have dropped them, um, and now only about 15% of large employers offer them, and small employers are even less likely to offer them just because of the, the burden and the liabilities that are attached to them. And so presumably this reflects some calculus on the part of private sector employers that these benefits don't pass a cost-benefit test when it comes to attracting talent, at least if you look at the costs in the right way. Is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation. And um, when you can make a promise without actually having to, to save for it, I think that is a different calculation than once you have to actually recognize the full cost of that promise. And um I think states are starting to grapple with that. In the piece, I talk about how the same accounting change essentially came to the public sector in the last decade, and states are starting to implement it now and starting to recognize that they've made promises to their public employees, and they're in a similar situation that companies were before. They're starting to have to recognize that, and um, we'll see what their reaction is, whether the uh, whether they decide if the true costs are worth paying for the benefits or not. Yeah, so you may have anticipated and to some extent answered what was going to be my next question, that we now have just 15% of private sector workers having access to employer-provided retiree health benefits, but a much larger share throughout the public sector. So about 70% of public school teachers work in states or districts that offer health benefits to retirees under age 65, 
and about 60% work for an employer that offers health benefits even after 65, at which point all Americans become eligible for Medicare. I was going to ask why is that the case, and to some degree it may be just because the accounting standards hadn't made their way into the public sector. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. It's um, uh, Some people this week have made a reference to the, the Seinfeld episode where um, Jerry and Elaine are going to make a uh, car where they're picking up a car rental and they've made a reservation and the sales clerk recognizes they have a reservation, but they don't have any cars for them. And Jerry makes a joke like, it's easy to take the reservation, but you have to actually hold the reservation. And it seems like states are starting to recognize that they're in that situation of a sales clerk. They've made these promises and um, haven't done much to save for them and actually um, take care of their, their members and their participants. So just how large are these liabilities and how much of that some have districts and states, I guess, are really the, the major players here. How much have states saved? Yes, we don't have perfect data on this. We used, in the paper, we used data from the Pew Center in the States, which collects um, statewide figures and nationwide, collectively, for all state and local governments, they owe about $700 billion in unfunded liabilities for what are called um, post-employment benefits and, and health care being the largest of those. And since um, we estimate in the paper that roughly about one-third of state and local government workers are teachers, we estimate that about $230 billion of that is just due to current and future teachers for health care benefits. Um, and the other thing that we know in the piece is that this is uh, largely unfunded, and so states and districts have put very little away to pay for these promises. The average ratio, called the funded ratio, is just 7%. That means that for every dollar in future promises they've made, they've only set aside $0.07. Cents. Um, and that's even after accounting for growth of that uh, investments over time. And so they're, they're very far behind what they should be right now. And so how does that funding situation compare to the situation for teacher pensions, your other big area of expertise and uh, a big liability that has received a lot of attention from policymakers over the past decade. Yep. So in terms of total dollars, the pension uh, obligations are larger. They're collectively about $500 billion for educational workers like teachers. Um, and so the health care benefits at $230 billion are smaller. However, the pension benefits are actually better funded nationally. They're about 65% funded as opposed to that 7% figure I just cited earlier. And so that means that um, the health care plans are in much more shape, and um, that will put a bigger pressure and burden on um, the health care benefits and those costs. And the other big difference, I guess, between the pension situation and the retiree health care benefit situation is the degree to which the benefits themselves are legally protected. That is, that a state could not change them uh, in an ongoing way. Uh, help us understand that distinction. Right. So it varies state by state, but in the pension world, um, there's uh, about half of states have rules that protect uh, changes from happening to even to current workers. So if you've been working for a single day, the state can never change the pension formula going forward, at least not down. They can enhance it, but they can't reduce it. 
Um, and other states have, so those are constitutional protections. Other states have statutory protections, so they have laws protecting it in similar ways. Those uh, protections don't exist to the same extent in the healthcare space. And so um, the funding is bad in the healthcare space, and the health, the legal protections are not as, as severe and severe on, from the employer's perspective or um, a protection from the worker's perspective. And so I think employers and states are going to start looking at these and saying, we've made all these promises. Can we actually deliver on them? What are our sort of compromises that we can, um, you know, protect the workers who are either in retirement already or close to retirement, but can we make changes for future accruals going forward? And presumably one of the questions they'll be asking when they make that calculation is whether there's any evidence that these benefits are, in fact, useful in attracting and retaining effective teachers. What do we know about that? So we don't know that much about attraction or even early career retention. So it would be hard to measure attraction. We'd have to go back to when the plans were created or states that have dropped their plans, which isn't very many yet, um, and whether that changed behavior. And my guess is, judging from the pension world, applying some of the lessons from the pension world, is that teachers are not very sensitive, especially early career teachers, are not very sensitive to changes in benefit plans. Um, they it, it, Usually the plans are statewide, so that would mean they have to go outside their state or give up something they've already trained for, for to not go into profession. And then once they're in the profession, um, the benefits often require many years of service to get much out of them. And so we don't see much changes in behavior around the different thresholds. And it's only until teachers get close to actually realizing the benefits after they've served for 20 or 30 years that they start changing their behavior accordingly. And in fact, in many cases, that means retiring earlier than they might otherwise have because they have access to a pension and this uh, health benefit plan. That's right. So we see this in the private sector, and there's a piece, actually, a research paper by Marita Fitzpatrick looking at what happened in Illinois after they introduced their plan. And what they found essentially is that, uh, what she found essentially is that it, the guarantee of subsidized health benefits uh, cause teachers to teachers and other educators to retire earlier than they otherwise would have um, by about two years. So essentially, the plans are encouraging, causing teachers to retire earlier than they would have. We're talking about you know teachers who are 55, 57, 60 before they would otherwise retire are are being induced to by the health benefits themselves. So states and school districts are being forced to increase the amount that they're contributing, that they're requiring employees to contribute to fund these benefits. They also have more flexibility, at least than is the case when it comes to their pension obligations to change the structure of benefits. So how are they responding? How are they using that flexibility? And uh, is that response sustainable? Yeah, so the biggest responses have been to limit eligibility. So in the piece, we cite Los Angeles. And at one point in the 80s, if you were hired there, you could retire after five years of service with full medical, dental, and vision coverage um, for you and your spouse for life. 
um, which is a very generous benefit. And again, the, the city wasn't calculating the actual cost of that benefit properly. So they weren't calculating that. And so what they've done over time is limit eligibility. They have different tiers based on when employees started working. So now um, it's up to 25 years of service. And so everybody in the district is paying for this benefit. The district as a whole is paying. It's based on the salary of every person employed by the district. But yet that means fewer and fewer people are actually going to qualify for it. And, and I think that's an untenable situation in the long run. If states keep restricting benefits while making everybody pay for them, I don't think that's a, a good value proposition, both for workers. Taxpayers also might get upset that their tax dollars increasingly are um, going to uh, enhance the compensation of very backloaded employees as opposed to um, paying for current day instructional costs and teacher salaries and books, textbooks, and, and other types of services that go directly to students. So perhaps the most original contribution you make in the article, in addition to laying out the problem as we've been discussing, is to consider what policymakers might want to do instead. So would you be willing to talk us through some of the options that you uh, put in front of them and how um, they should uh, decide which one to pursue? Yeah, so I think of it as uh, separating out between coverage and payment. So I'll start with the coverage option. And, and the one big thing that um, I'm surprised more policymakers have not done, and we cite in there that North Carolina recently changed their plan. And so workers, state workers, this doesn't affect teachers yet, um, who begin their employment after January 2021 will not receive these benefits. Instead, they will be eligible for health benefits through the Obamacare exchanges. This is essentially like taking advantage of a federal provision to help the state out. And many, the average pension in many states is, let's say, 30000 40000 a year. It's not all that generous. And so for a worker like that, a retiree like that, they would be eligible for uh, subsidies under the federal Obamacare uh, to cover the full cost of a basic plan. Um, and so there's no need for a state to cover the same on their own. They could offload, essentially offload that responsibility to the federal government. Um, and so then that leaves someone like a, a pensioner with other assets, or maybe they have a generous pension um, of 70000 100000 150000 And I think states need to think hard about whether they should be subsidizing the uh, health benefits of those types of workers, encouraging them to retire earlier and paying, like, what's the cost versus benefit of that? Yeah, so um, shifting retirees onto the Obamacare exchanges would, to some degree, make the benefits more targeted to those retirees that actually need the support. Of course, it would also shift some funding burden from states and districts to the federal taxpayer, and I'm not sure how to exactly think about about that trade-off. Um what other options are on the table? Exactly. So the other thing I encourage states to think about is how to protect um, retirees of modest means, and that should be where they're really spending their efforts. So the, the shift to the Obamacare exchanges does take care of that. Someone who only has a small pension to fall back on would be eligible for the Obamacare subsidies. But there are other ways to do it as well. One would be to focus coverage on 
um, catastrophic loss. For example, instead of providing base coverage or even generous coverage to everybody, think about how a state could think about how they could insure against very catastrophic expenses. Um, there are different health, health plans that do that that would target that. Um, one other thing to option would be to just focus, if a state didn't want to use the federal plan, they could think about limiting benefits only to employee retirees of certain means, and so targeting it more effectively and maybe helping people with higher assets or uh, to save separately through HSA health savings accounts um, that they could accumulate assets on their own as opposed to the state subsidizing them in, in their retirement. Now, I assume that one of the reasons we haven't seen states making a lot of these changes uh, has to come down to politics. Um, what are the politics of this issue and how did we see those politics play out in some of the labor unrest in public education earlier this year? Yeah, the politics are, are obviously thorny here, and we're, if we're talking about um, benefits that have been promised to long-serving workers or retirees who, who made life decisions based on a promise that the state made them. Um, so the change that North Carolina made, for example, only applied to future hires. Um, I can see states either taking that route or to say, you know, someone who's under the age of 40 or some some cutoff point where they, you know, had allowed people time to plan for any changes. I think that would be part of it. Um, the other question is, how to think about it. It's a complicated policy area and how policymakers should be, should be very careful about making changes and explaining them well as they do that and who will be affected and, and how. And am I right to think that uh, proposed changes to retiree health care played a role in uh, the West Virginia walkout in particular this spring? Yeah, that's right. So, um, it was about – so essentially these plans are now facing um, – since, since they aren't funded, the state has to figure out how to pay for them. And what they're doing in response, in addition to the benefit cuts I mentioned earlier, the benefit eligibility restrictions, they're also increasing the contribution rates. And they're doing this in two ways, either increasing employer contribution rates, which means that there's – more money going into the health benefits and less money going into other education spending, or they're increasing employee contributions. And this was a factor in West Virginia where teachers there were seeing uh, lower take-home pay, essentially, because the state was asking them to pay more. And so um, this is an issue, and it's, it's why teachers – it's a big benefit cost or a big reason why teachers are not seeing raises um, in their take-home pay because states are having these burdens that they have to pay for somehow. Yeah, it's interesting. You see in some cases teachers and other employees resisting changes to these plans, but of course the plans are putting major downward pressure on their take-home pay at the same time. And it's not at all clear to me how that's going to play out over time. Yeah, I think there's a big lack of transparency and uh, the employer side either from the state's perspective and the district perspective, doesn't get translated to a teacher. A teacher may not even know 
that the employer cost of pensions or health benefits is going up, but that means that the employer is left with less money to give to teachers. And particularly in, right now when we're having a pretty good economic environment and budgets are flush, the employers are reluctant to spend more because of these obligations, and yet the employees see the flush budgets and, and ask why, why not, why isn't it translating into higher pay? And so there's a, a big disconnect there that um, has to be resolved. My guest today has been Chad Aldeman, a principal at Bellwether Education Partners and editor of teacherpensions.org. His article, Healthcare for Life, is available now at educationnext.org. Chad, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.